Okay, so we're going to take a time now, as we do each week, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app or whatever you're using this morning, if you could turn to our passage today in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, starting at verse 1, and, if, and when you found that, if you're able, if you would stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. I know it's a longer passage, but I'll be standing for the whole time, so you can do it. <laughs> John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. It's a cool passage, one of my favorite in John. We read this, as he, this is Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, when, when John writes that, he's saying what's about to happen is tied directly to what Jesus just said. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. It sounds like a Monty Python skit. But I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go wash in Siloam and go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes. That's important detail here. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can this man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the man's parents um, who, of the parents of the man who had received sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And the parents said, we know it's our son. We know that he was born blind. But how he sees now, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they, were, they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. When they say give glory to God there, they're not saying like, Hey, praise God because he healed you, not Jesus. Give glory to God in this sense means like, Come on, own up and tell the truth. We, we know there's more information you're not telling us. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, verse 25, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see and they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said to them, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, 
We don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Oh, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now, you, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. You may be seated. We pray for us quickly, and we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask you for the illumination of the word through my words now, I'm asking you to shine brightly into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. Reveal what you want to reveal in us today, and we reveal what you want to reveal to us. I pray that you would break down and shine through any barrier, any division, remove anything that would hinder or distract, accomplish the purpose for which you've sent this word, God, in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, actually, uh, because I'm in my late 40s now and not like four years old. But I figure, given the fact that two weeks ago we talked about the value of community and, you know, being truly known, letting ourselves be really known, I should just, you know, be an example of what I say is so important as far as those values. So I'm just going to say it to you. I can uh, still become paralyzed with fear when I wake up in the middle of the night and can't immediately identify some object or thing in the room where I'm sleeping. Does this happen to anyone of you as well? When you wake up and you can't see that thing, it's like, what is that, what is that, what is that? And, and your mind just gets going more and more and you're getting more and more afraid. This happens to me all the time. It happens to me at home. It happens to me when we're staying at someone else's house. Hotels are the worst for this because they have perfected blackout blinds in a way that no one has. And it's an unfamiliar place. And so it's just the perfect storm of like, what is that? What is that thing? Um, and so when I can't see and something's not where I expect it to be, maybe I've just seen too many scary movies, I don't know. But I can, my mind can come up with some of the most terrifying descriptions and, and suggestions as to what that, that, that coat or who that coat on the back of a chair is. Um, yes, I have punched a shower curtain before, just certain that there was someone or something lurking behind it. Um, I won't even tell you what goes through my mind, or at least used to, when my daughters would have a scary dream and come into the room and just be standing beside the bed. And I would just wake up and someone just standing there like, oh, so amazed that I didn't injure my kids when this happened. My point is that the absence of light creates a world of fear, uh, anxiety, and uncertainty where even the smallest of lights, like, you know, you just like tap your cell phone and the lock screen comes up and that light, even that small light can radically transform a space, right? 
And the light, if you think about it, it doesn't just transform the space physically from a place where you know, it used to be darkness, but now you can see. It also transforms your understanding and experience of that space. Because now all the things that seem mysterious and freaky and scary, you now can see. They're, they're revealed for what they truly are. And then on the basis of that understanding, you also interact with that space differently now. Whereas before, maybe you would walk trepidatiously, like, what is that, what is that? Now you're walking confidently, I, I can see clearly what's going on, and I can head back to wherever I was going without fear anymore. So it changes the way I interact with the space. And then beyond that even, doesn't the transforming introduction of even a small light, like a cell phone light, encourage you and inspire you to want to bring even more light to bear on the situation, to turn on more lights? Which I know is, you know, complicated when you're married or you're all staying in the same hotel room, but you, you want to bring more light to bear so that all those amazing effects of transformation can take place to an even greater degree. Because I really want to know there's nothing in here. But we are concluding this uh, five-part mini-series through our values and foundations as a church this, uh, this Sunday. That is, like, those things that are, that are at the core of everything we are and do as a church. As we've said throughout this series, values are like building foundations in that although you don't see them, the, the, the building, everything built on top and sustained by that foundation, everything on top of it is sustained and supported by the foundation underneath. The values that we've looked at thus far that are at the, are at the core of our identity, that we seek to build on uh, as a church are the values of the Word of God, prayer, community, and stewardship. And the last value that I want to look at together with you this morning is the value of transformation. The value of transformation, which might be one of the more obvious ones that you'd expect to see on a list of values for us, particularly uh, when you look at our vision statement, that, that destination which we, by God's grace, are working towards together to try to achieve, where we've said uh, we are people continually being renewed by the gospel ourselves, and we're seeking to be ministers of renewal in our city, in our world. I mean, when you think about it, clearly transformation is at the heart of the whole thing. It's all about seeing that renewal take place, seeing things transformed from one way to the other. And if you've been with us... Uh, through any part of this series, you probably also know we've also put together these value statements that go alongside each one of the values that help kind of clearly define what we mean by that value and also help us and inspire us to an even deeper foundation on that value. And the statement that we've written for this value of transformation is this. We are a people of transformation. We are a people of transformation drawn towards an ever greater depth of life in Christ we both behold and bring his light into every place of darkness. Which hopefully, uh, seeing that, uh, hearing that, uh, reading that statement, immediately draws a parallel for you, first of all, of the example that I just began with about uh, the way that light transforms places of darkness. But hopefully, it also draws a parallel between the passage that we just read this morning in John 9 where Jesus, the light of the world, transforms this man who was blind from birth, both physically as well as spiritually, as he shines with an ever-increasing brightness, both in as well as through that man. We see them uh, happening in both, both inside as well as the light of Christ shining through him, which is exactly why we stated this value that way, because it's supposed to be both. First of all, because although we may have been transformed by the light of Christ initially, that transformation continues to be an ongoing process where we're drawn to experience even more of his light 
and life over the course of our lives. So that's the first part. But because transformation is not simply our experience, it's also our employment. That is like what it is that God calls us to do as his kingdom citizens, that we are to work to also bring transformation into every place where his light is not yet shining. That's also our, our employment as God's people. Why? Well, because the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus, it lights up places. It lights up places of darkness. It, it, it reveals things in us and exposes all those places of fear and anxiety and uncertainty for what they truly are. It helps us to see properly. And it also then gives us confidence when we see properly to walk into those places, to face them in a way that previously felt impossible. That's, that's why we seek both the greater experience of Jesus' light as well as seeking to shine his light to others as well. It's, it's meant to be both things. And when you look at this incredible story, another one of these beautiful narratives from John's Gospel that we're looking at in our passage today, I think you see both of those things taking place here as well. Namely, we see both the experience of transformation, but also the exercise of transformation. The experience and the exercise of transformation. So I want to just spend a few minutes looking at those two things together with you. So if you still have your Bible and you've closed it, your Bible app, would you open it again to this passage? Just follow along with me. As we look at this last value that is at the core of who we are, as well as who we hope to be as a church. Okay, so let's look first of all at the experience of transformation. The experience of transformation. So the first and most obvious experience of transformation that we see in our passage today is with this man's physical sight, right? His physical sight. We learn in verse 1 that this man has been blind since birth. He's never once seen before, a fact which sadly actually needs to be corroborated by the man's parents before the Pharisees will believe that he actually was blind from birth, which I mean, I, I can't imagine actually asking somebody to have to corroborate that. It just seems unbelievable that he'd even be asked to, to corroborate such a thing. And yet, as I live and, and listen in the world today, I often wonder if we don't do really actually the exact same thing, just in more subtle ways. When people present to us, they talk about how they're struggling deeply with something, they're working through something hard, they're dealing with depression and anxiety. Sometimes we can do the exact same thing to people. Well, what do you mean? Oh, that doesn't sound so bad. And yet, as I heard someone rightly say, uh, people shouldn't have to prove their pain to you. When someone shares with you that they're hurting, we should take that at face value and not say, well, what do you mean? But that's clearly what they're doing here. This man needs to prove the fact that he actually was blind from birth. And, and, and I can also understand how the question that Jesus' disciples asked there in verse 2, look there, who, who sinned, that this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, it seems unbelievable. We're like, what's going on in this culture here? Everyone's so, like, mean and, and like, having these all, like, really thoughtless kind of comments. And yet, when you look at kind of the religious thought of Jewish people at this time, this is actually completely in line with the way they thought at this time. If someone had a debilitating physical impairment, a mental impairment, financial impairment, it was often seen that that was the result of either their sin or their parents' sin. It was, it was a way of really just trying to clear God of responsibility for these awful things. It was saying, it's not he doesn't do that, they've done something and so they're being judged or punished. Which, no, I mean, it's not for a moment to say that there aren't like 
consequences, like there's never any consequences in life for sinful action. I'm not trying to present that. There are. I mean, you get behind the wheel after having too much to drink. Uh, you pursue a romantic relationship with someone else's spouse. Yeah, there's, there's consequences for those actions. 100% there are. And yet, I love this. As, as Bruce Milne in his commentary helpfully adds, he says, Scripture refuses to universalize such instances. There was, this was the issue, he says, between Job and his friends. If you know the story of Job, this guy who, who lost everything in his family, completely wiped out, and his friends seeking to comfort him, uh, although Job maintains his innocence the whole time, they're like, yeah, but are you though? Are you? We, we know there must be something you did, because God wouldn't just do this for no reason. Uh, he, he, he says the lesson of the book of Job is God's dismissal of that simplistic theology of suffering, and it is here dismissed by Jesus. But as we see now, as soon as Jesus heals this man in the following verses, after shattering their simplistic binary of reasons for this man's blindness, stating that the reason for his blindness was actually that the works of God might be displayed in him, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful picture. Jesus almost looks like a, a sculptor who is taking his prized uh, creation of clay and he's doing repairs on it. He makes mud from the ground, places it on the man's eyes and instructs him to go wash in the pool of Siloam and literally turns on the lights for him in a way that he never imagined possible. Suddenly this man who has never seen now sees for the first time. Now Jesus kind of pieces out here. He exits the scene for the rest of pretty much the whole story. But as we heard, as we read this passage, two things about this man's healing cause quite a disturbance now. First of all, the fact that Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath. Uh, the law of Moses clearly stated there was to be no work done. This was a day of rest. And the Pharisees and religious rulers had added a whole lot of other things on top of that to make sure nobody worked. And Jesus had clearly violated a number of these things, um, even though it seems ridiculous to us perhaps. He, he had violated this by performing this healing on the Sabbath. And secondly, the other thing that caused the disturbance was that just that the miracle was done by Jesus. Uh, we see and look in verse 22 there, you can see that the attitude towards Jesus He's already achieved kind of a notorious status with the religious rulers. They're already being like, we need to get rid of this guy. Nobody's allowed to talk about him. So for those two reasons, uh, it causes this huge disturbance. There's a massive trial. It's like judgment at Nuremberg here. And, and this man, multiple witnesses, people brought in to bring evidence, all kinds of things to investigate this man's healing. But the thing I want to highlight in particular that takes place in the midst of this trial is, and I think what we're shown here that's really cool is that having his physical sight restored is not the fullness of this man's experience of transformation. It's actually only just the beginning of it. His physical healing, that's just the beginning of his experience of transformation. But what we see over the course of this trial, which eventually results in him being expelled, he's cast out of the synagogue, is that we see the lights inside him. The light inside him coming on more and more to the point where, yeah, Jesus does finally show up there in verse 35. And as a result, this man's is now his spiritual sight is restored as well. And that's the thing. Maybe, maybe you already knew this if you've been in church a long, a long time, spent a lot of time in the Bible. You might know this already. Moving from darkness to light. Moving from uh, blindness to sight. These are often uh, pictures that the Bible uses to describe salvation to describe our experience of the way Jesus transforms us. One of the clearest places you see this kind of metaphor being used to describe our experience of salvation is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is where the Apostle Paul talks about 
the God of this world, that is Satan. He says, blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So these are like the ultimate, kind of like spiritual cosmic blackout blinds. We, we are kept from being able to see the beauty of Jesus, be able to see the light of the gospel. But then, as Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, whenever someone turns to Jesus, whenever someone sees Jesus for who he truly is and puts their faith in him, the blinds are removed and, and light pours in. That's, that's the picture of what we're seeing. And I think that's exactly what you see here happening in our passage today as well. As, as ever-increasing revelatory light of Jesus breaks in in real time in this man's life. And we actually get to kind of watch his experience of transformation. You notice there he starts out in verse 11. When he's first asked about Jesus, he describes him as the man called Jesus. But then all of a sudden, by verse 17, suddenly, oh no, he's a prophet. Verse 33, he is clearly from God. And by verse 38, he's calling him Lord and worshiping him. Indeed, as D.A. Carson notes, this man's eyes are opening wider. He is beginning to see still more clearly, while the eyes of his judges are becoming clouded over with a blinding theological mist. And as you think about your own experience of transformation, I don't know where you're at in that process today, but I think the first thing we're shown in this passage is that as the light of the world, Jesus is able to bring about transformation in every sense of the word both physically as well as spiritually. He, he's able to do both. And in fact, the first actually points directly to the second. Because uh, as J.I. Packer notes, uh, that Jesus' healing of the man born blind, it's ultimately what he calls a sign miracle. It's a sign miracle pointing to an even deeper spiritual reality. So if you remember back in Matthew chapter 9, when we saw that paralytic man uh, lowered through the roof in front of Jesus, and Jesus heals him physically, he says, pick up your mat and walk, and walk so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In the same way there, Packer says this, here, Jesus gives sight to a man born blind, but this is also an evident symbol that Jesus, the light of the world, also brings the light of the knowledge of God. It's a physical miracle that points to a now a spiritual reality of what Jesus wants to do as well. Which means, first and foremost, there is no place of darkness, physical or spiritual, that the light of Christ is not able to illumine and transform. That's what we're seeing accomplished here. But what we're also shown is the way transformation takes place as well. For both the believer in Jesus as well as the, the person who has not yet come to faith in Jesus. Because look, look at the passage again. What you clearly see here is that there's an order to the transformation. And I think that order is actually really significant. Because notice, Jesus restores the man's physical sight first before restoring his spiritual sight. Why? Well, I think because if it's true that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of, of those who don't yet believe so that we're unable to see the light of the gospel, in order for us to see Jesus for who he truly is, in order to respond to him in faith, we first need to be given eyes that are unable to see him. We need to be able to see Jesus first before he brings about the opening of our spiritual eyes. So, I don't know what the light that Jesus has shone in you right now looks like. Maybe it's as small as the lock screen on a cell phone, just a simple small light. What that means is that the, the presence of light at all, that's a good thing. It doesn't mean there's some kind of deficiency in you that there's not yet more light. It just means that the process of transformation is ongoing. It's still happening. And that's a good thing. The presence of light at all is already transforming. But for the one who's already been granted 
eyes to see Jesus and had their spiritual sight restored through faith in him. It's important to remember that process of transformation is still ongoing for you and me as well. We're, we're still in an ongoing process of being transformed by his light as well. As the Apostle Paul uh, says really clearly there, um, just because we've had our, our light restored doesn't mean um, that it's going to be all at once. It's all going to take place at once. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about our transformation being from one degree to the next. The transformation of forgiven, that takes place in a moment. But the transformation of being conformed into the image of Jesus, having more of his light shining into us, that's an ongoing process that takes place over time. And we need to remember that because the reality is, we're, even for those who have had our spiritual eyes open, we're fickle people. Uh, who, we are prone to wander back into places of darkness, as the old him says it. And so we need to be reminded that this is going to be an ongoing process over the course of our lives until every place of darkness is revealed and the good work that God began in us is at last complete. There's a lot more we could say about that, but that is the experience of transformation we see in our passage and that we feel in our own lives. The last thing I want to look at together with you is the exercise of transformation the exercise of it. And we need to look at this because, as we say in our statement on transformation, we not only behold the light of Christ as we seek an ever deeper experience of life and faith in Him, we also bring His light into every place of darkness as well. That's also a part of what we've been called to do. Or if you want to use a speak of transformation in the same language of stewardship that we looked at last week, transformation is not only our experience, something that, that is to be treasured and enjoyed, it's also our employment a gift we've been given that we've been called to pour out and use up for the benefit of others. That transformation is not something we just hold to ourselves. So to help kind of get us into this and see what I'm talking about here, I want to share this. Brian Chappell, he recounts a story from one of the key debates that took place when the Westminster Confession of Faith was first being formed. Uh, this is kind of like one of the most kind of magisterial statements of faith out there. Um, highly recommend checking it out. Um, but there was a key debate that took place when this was first being formed and put together. He says, One scholar got up and argued persuasively for a position that would have mired the church in political debates for years to come. And as he spoke, another young scholar, a man named George Gillespie, was seen to be writing furiously on a tablet uh, as he was preparing his response. The task of refuting this first scholar seemed insurmountable. It seemed impossible, and yet when Gillespie rose to speak, he spoke with such power and scriptural persuasion that the scholar conceded his position, and the matter was decided in Gillespie's favor. And Chapel concludes the story this way. When the matter was decided, the friends of Gillespie snatched from his desk the tablet which he had so hastily collected his thoughts. They expected to find a brilliant summary of the words so masterfully just delivered. Instead, they found only one phrase written over and over again, Daluchum Domine, which means give light, O Lord. That's all he'd written. Give light, O Lord. And I believe what's beautifully illustrated by that story is that very employment in transformation that we've been called to carry out as those who have been transformed and are continually being transformed by the light of Christ ourselves. And where you hear that call in our passage is in verse First of all, look back there with me. This is where immediately following his explanation of the purpose for this man's blindness was that the works of God would be displayed in him. Jesus goes on to say, We must work the works of him who sent me 
while it is day. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I must work these works of him who sent me. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. So Jesus, that means if you're a follower of Jesus, you are included in working these works. And then right after that, he goes on immediately. After saying that, he spits on the ground, makes mud, anoints the man's eyes, and heals his physical sight. So he's given a, a demonstration of what that bringing of the light looks like, what those works of light look like. And I, and I need you to follow me closely here, because I think we could probably be confused if I had said nothing else here. I don't believe what Jesus is saying is that as those who are being transformed by the light, our, our job now is to go around looking for physically blind people and putting spit mud in their eyes and, and hoping that they're going to get physical sight back. That's, that's not what we're being called to do, no. But remember, what was it that regaining his physical sight enabled that man who was born blind to do? When he was given physical sight to see for the first time, what did it enable him to do? It enabled him to see Jesus. It enabled him to see Jesus for who he truly was. And then as a result of that, he was enabled to have his spiritual eyes opened as well. Right? Which means what I believe Jesus is absolutely calling us to do, just as George Gillespie was madly scribbling on that tablet, is to seek to live such transformed lives, to seek to, to speak about Jesus, to point to Jesus in such a way that through our lived and spoken witness, we might give more light into this darkened world. We might join Jesus in, in bringing his light to bear on this darkened world. I think that's absolutely what we're being called to do, which I know that might sound like at first arrogant and triumphalistic, like I'm going to bring the light to this dark place, but we, we need to remember it's not, it's not our light. It's not your light or mine that we're bringing. We're bringing the light of Christ to bear. We're pointing to him. We're helping people see him better so that they too might have their spiritual eyes and spiritual sight restored as well. And interestingly, although I, I don't think there's, there's no indication here that he understood this is what he was doing, I think this is exactly what we see this man who was healed of his blindness doing during his trial and investigation by the Pharisees. He's doing it just instinctively. Because notice, all the Pharisees seem intent on doing is either discrediting the miracle or Jesus or both. They can't, they just can't celebrate the fact that somebody who was blind from birth had never seen was given his sight back. They just can't seem to do it. Which means ultimately, as Jesus later says at the end of our passage, they're continuing to walk in, in blindness. They're continuing to walk in darkness. And yet look, at every turn, at every question, this man on trial for his healing speaks of Jesus in such a way, continues to testify to the work of Jesus in his life in such a way, that continues to bring light to bear in this place of darkness. It's simple, but he continues to bring the light just through those simple things, the way he speaks about Jesus and confesses the work of Jesus in his life. Now, yes, the devout Jews and religious leaders, believing that they already see when they, when they don't, they reject that light. They, they choose darkness instead, yes. And if you've ever sought to bring the light of Jesus into a place of darkness before, you know that that's absolutely a possibility of what can happen. People often respond that way when we seek to bring his light, but... I think the point for those of us who've experienced the life-transforming work of Jesus in our own life, as we seek to bring the light ourselves, I think we need to just worry far less about the results of the light. We need to leave that divine work to the light of the world and simply worry far more, care far more about living the reality of a transformed life, about speaking about Jesus, about testifying to his work in our own lives in such a way 
that we're faithful to our calling to bring his light into each place of darkness. Our calling is to bring the light. The light will worry about how and when it transforms. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That's what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, going on to add these words. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. As I said when we began, the absence of light, it creates a world of fear, anxiety, uncertainty, which is why it means Jesus, as the light of the world, Jesus is perfectly suited and powerful to bring about transformation into each one of those places of darkness. But notice something else. Right near the end of our passage, what Jesus says to this now seeing man and the hearing of some Pharisees. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And as Jesus had said earlier to one Pharisee in particular, Nicodemus, John chapter 3, he said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So I think in light of everything that we've looked at this morning as it relates to the value of transformation, I think the very first place to focus as it regards that, that same simple prayer of George Gillespie, Daluchum Domine, give light, O Lord. The very first place to focus as we pray that very prayer ourselves is, is inward, is, is on ourselves. To focus that prayer on us. Maybe you're here this morning listening online or whatever, and you've never been given light to see Jesus for who he truly is. Never had your spiritual eyes opened and granted new life in him. If that's you, I believe Jesus will absolutely honor your prayer this morning of give light to me, O Lord. I'm praying that you would be asking him to do that yourself right now, if that's, if that's where you're at, that you would pray that prayer, give light to me, O God, that I could see, open my eyes to see. And he'll do it. I absolutely believe he'll accomplish that. Help you to see and reveal things, reveal what's true, expose the lies that you've been believing. I pray that transformation would take place in this very moment in our meeting. Or maybe you've known Jesus for many years. You've been granted spiritual sight and you, you see already. I think that same prayer, give light, O Lord, could be prayed by you as well prayed for ourselves as we, as we seek to be drawn to an ever greater depth of light in Christ, a greater depth of life in Christ, as he reveals more and more of the places where his light has not yet shined in us. So I think that's the very first place of focus. God, continue to shine your light in me. Give more light in me. Transform me into an ever greater depth of life in you. But the second place I believe we need to focus with regard to that same prayer is outward, is, is to the world all around us, still blind and in love with the darkness. That in every place where we see darkness, in every place we see a world living in opposition to and defiance of the way God designed it to be, that that would be our same prayer. Give light, O oh Lord. 
And that that prayer would be both a request. God, would you bring your light into this place of darkness, into this broken relationship, into this uh, broken conflict between nations? Would you, whatever it is, bring your light here, God. But that, there, that it wouldn't just be a request, it would also be a response. The response of, God, use me in whatever way you call me to do it, to bring your light here as well. And doing that confident in every place and every place of focus that we speak that simple prayer, that as Jesus confesses of himself, he truly is the light of the world. He lights up places of darkness. That's what he came to do. And being confident as John confessed about Jesus there at the beginning. In him is life. That life is light for all people. His light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome. God, help us be those people of transformation, bringing your light to every place of darkness in us and in the world around us.